0: I'm Haley and I'm Bree and this is Calendar of Crime where each week we examine a case from this week in history. The case we're covering this week is from well before our time. This is an old school case involving organized crime, a shootout between mobsters and police, a fugitive apprehension and attempted rescue, and the mass casualty event that led to a major change in FBI policy. Today we're talking about the events that took place on June 17th, 1933 known today as the Kansas City Massacre. To talk about this case, we need to discuss the man at the center of it. That man was Frank Nash, also known as Jelly. Why Jelly? It was apparently shortened from his childhood nickname of Jelly Bean, which he was called due to his, quote, poise and well-groomed appearance. I mean, I still
1: have no comprehension as to why he had that nickname, but I feel like a lot of this case may bring out a
0: huh kind of response. Correct. Definitely a different time. And the amount of interesting and unusual nicknames that we're going to run across this case is through the roof, so be ready. Nash was born on February 6, 1887, in Birdseye, Indiana, to John and Alta Nash. Alta was John's second of three wives, and Frank had two sisters and two stepbrothers. John Nash owned hotels in several southern towns and states, and Frank spent a lot of his childhood in and around these hotels, particularly in Paragold, Arkansas, and Hobart, Oklahoma.
1: In his teen years, Nash worked at his father's hotels, and he served in the U.S. Army from 1904 to 1907. However, he quickly developed a taste for crime and began participating in criminal activities. He is most well-known as a very successful bank robber and is suspected of participating in approximately 200 bank robberies. Two hundred? Yeah, man, the early 1900s were wild, and... Seriously, that's almost unfathomable.
0: Who has time
1: for that? Yeah, 100%, but again, this was a totally different time. Nash had developed connections with gangs across America, and some mobsters considered Nash to be somewhat of a mastermind of criminal activity. Despite the activities he chose to participate
0: in, he was widely considered to be friendly and charming. I don't know why, but I picture a guy in a fedora with a smirk and a cigar, just elegantly holding up a bank. No, me too, and I honestly doubt that's far from the truth. Nash was caught and penalized for his crimes more than once. The first instance was in 1913. He and a friend, Nolly Wortman, who had the unusual nickname of Humpy, stole close to $1,000 from a store in Sepulpa, Oklahoma. How much would that
1: be in today's money?
0: That would be about $29,000 today. Oh, that's a lot. Wow. Okay, so they were caught and arrested for the robbery? Not Exactly. While they were escaping, Nash suggested hiding the money and laying low until the heat cooled down. Wartman went to bury the money, and while he was doing that, Nash shot him in the back and killed him. That escalated quickly. Right? And he didn't do a great job of hiding out either, because he was arrested just a few hours later and sentenced to life in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary.
1: Nash wasn't really feeling spending the rest of his life in prison, so five years after his sentence began, at the end of March in 1918, he convinced the warden he wanted to join the army and fight in World War I.
0: And they just let him leave prison to go serve in a war?
1: They did, and that's not even the craziest way he got out of prison, just wait. In this case, he was released on August 16th, 1918, and sent to France before the end of the war in November of that year.
0: And let me guess, he came back and didn't turn his life around? Correct. He came back and picked right back up where he had left off,
1: committing crimes and running amuck. He spent the next two years participating in illegal activities until he was caught again and convicted of safe cracking, which involves burglary using explosives. So basically, what, like opening bank safes by exploding them? Yeah, at least that's what I got from that description. He was sentenced to 25 years in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary, but became a trustee and
0: had his sentence reduced to five years. Okay, one, he was able to knock 20 years off of his sentence, and two, what is a trustee?
1: I know, 20 years off is a whole lot, especially for someone who had previously been convicted of murder. I assume this is just early 1900s things. As for the trustee thing, I had to look that up because I had no idea either. It turns out that this is a volunteer position for inmates in jail. Volunteer trustees perform menial work duties for no pay, like mopping, laundry, painting, etc. They can earn incentives within the jail for their work, and probably most appealing, they can ask for a reduction in their sentence.
0: Oh, wow. I've never heard of that. Is that an old school program that no longer exists? No, actually, believe it or not, it still exists today. Wow. Okay. Now I'm going to have to look into that, because I'm super curious. So when did Frank get out of prison this time? So when all was said and
1: done, he only ended up serving two years that time, and was released on December 29, 1922.
0: And while I would love to say that he reformed and changed his ways... He didn't. Almost immediately following his relief, Nash joined a group of bank robbers known as the Al Spencer Gang. So essentially, he was right back at it. Literally immediately. So Nash was out there living his best life of crime, and on August 20th, 1923, the Spencer gang robbed the Katy Limited Postal Train in Oquesa, Oklahoma. They stole mail and assaulted the mail carrier. There's not enough information to know why Nash felt like this particular crime could send him back to prison, but he must have, because he fled to Mexico almost immediately. He married a local woman there, and lots of sources claimed that he was hoping to falsify the date on their marriage license in order to provide himself an alibi for the time of the train robbery. I take it he was unable to do so? He must not have been able to, because in early 1924, he was enticed back across the border into the U.S., and he was arrested for the robbery.
1: How was he enticed back
0: across the border? No clue. When you're dealing with a crime from almost 100 years ago, reporting is super spotty and possibly even inaccurate. So all we know is that he came back across the border for some reason. I have to guess it was a pretty good one, seeing as he fled on his own in the first place. Yeah, that's fair enough. Nash and three other members of the Spencer gang were tried and convicted for the mail robbery and assault on the mail custodian in March of 1924. They were all sentenced 25 years at the US Penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas.
1: But as we said earlier, Nash wasn't really into the idea of spending that long in prison, and he was also charismatic and likable. By 1930, he had been appointed the deputy warden's chef and
0: general handyman. Let me guess. This position made him a trustee again, and he was able to get out early. Oh, nope, not this time. This time, on October 19th,
1: 1930, he was sent out on an errand outside the prison, and he just didn't return.
0: They sent him outside of the prison on an errand. It's wild, isn't it? Yeah, can't imagine something like that flying in this day and age. So where did he go, and what did he do next? He escaped to Chicago,
1: where he fell in love with a woman named Frances Luce. And you would think he might chill out on his criminal activity, but you would be incorrect. Nash continued his criminal activities, notably assisting in the escape of seven prisoners from Fort Leavenworth in December of 1931.
0: That's the same prison that he just walked out of, right? The very same. The FBI had basically had enough of Nash's shit by this point, and they launched an aggressive search for him throughout the U.S. and most of Canada. They uncovered his participation in the 1931 escape of those prisoners— and realized that he had close friendships with several gunmen involved in notable Midwest bank robberies, including two men named Francis Keating and Thomas Holding. The more that they discovered about Nash, the more they wanted to get him into custody.
1: I mean, yes, correct, that checks out. Meanwhile, after Nash had visited Hot Springs, Arkansas with Frances Luce and her daughter in the spring of 1932, they decided to return there to settle the following spring. At the time, Hot Springs was known as a playground for members of the criminal underworld. It was considered a national gambling mecca, with 10 major casinos and many smaller ones. Hotels advertised rooms for sex workers and horse race betting. When a sheriff attempted to bring the operation down in the first half of the 1900s, he was
0: found murdered. This is literally like the Wild West of Arkansas. Yeah, 100%.
1: And Nash felt right at home there. He married Francis Luce on May 26, 1933, and they adopted the last name of Moore to stay under the radar.
0: I thought he was already married in Mexico in 1923. Yes. So he just got married again? Yeah, I don't think legality was a primary concern of Frank Nash. That's a fair point. On July 7, 1932, FBI agents captured the two men that they had discovered were close friends of Nash. Francis Keating, and Thomas Holding in Kansas City, Missouri. I don't know if they were offered some sort of incentive or if they just didn't have loyalty, but they did sell out Nash and let the FBI know where he was hiding out in Hot Springs. Law enforcement found Nash and were able to apprehend him at the White Front Cigar
1: Store in Hot Springs on June 16, 1933. FBI agents Joe Lackey and Frank Smith, along with the police chief of McAllister, Oklahoma, Otto Reed, drove Nash to Fort Smith, Arkansas, where they boarded a train for Kansas City that night.
0: Why would the FBI agents need a police chief from Oklahoma to go with them? So
1: this is pretty
0: insane, but it turns out that in
1: 1933, FBI agents were not allowed to carry weapons or make arrests. What the fuck? Yeah, so they needed Otto Reed with them in order to take Nash into
0: custody. That is wild. I know, right? I was totally shocked by that. And reasonably so. The train that they boarded had an ETA in Kansas City of 7.15 a.m. on June 17, 1933. Reed Vetterly, the special agent in charge of the FBI's Kansas City office, planned on meeting them there. He planned to have another agent as well as a couple of Kansas City police detectives with him.
1: But while law enforcement was making their plans, word quickly spread through the criminal underworld that Nash had been captured, and they began to make their own plans.
0: I imagine that their plans were a little bit different than the plans that law enforcement had.
1: Yeah, definitely. A man named Vern Miller decided that Nash needed to be liberated. Miller had served in the U.S. Army during World War I. When he returned home to South Dakota after the war, he was elected as a police officer in 1920— In 1922, he was elected as sheriff, but he became bored of his position and disappeared to live a life of crime. Oh, you know, how you do, that's a choice. Yeah. Apparently, Nash and Miller were good friends, and Nash's wife had contacted
0: Miller following Nash's arrest. I'm guessing she probably asked Miller to try to help her husband escape.
1: Yeah, I agree, that is probably what happened. So on the night of June 16, 1933, while Nash was on that train, Miller got on the phone at Malloy's Tavern, which is a historic mob location in Kansas City, and began concocting his
0: plan. FBI reports would later state that two men, Charles Pretty Boy Floyd and Adam Ricketti, arrived in Kansas City that night to aid in the liberation attempt. They left a trail of stupidity behind them on their way to Kansas City. They had to stop for car repairs in Missouri, and while they were waiting at a local garage, Sheriff Jack Killingsworth arrived. Ricketti recognized him and decided to mug him and seized a machine gun. Ricketti and Floyd held the sheriff and the garage attendants at gunpoint, transferred their arsenal of weapons to another vehicle in the garage, and then drove off, taking the sheriff with them as hostage.
1: This is the most chaotic fucking thing I've ever heard of. It's literally so chaotic.
0: Then they drove to another city in Missouri where they abandoned the stolen vehicle and stole a new one. At some point, they released the sheriff. Wait, wait, wait. they just let him go? Yep, off into the wind. And then they arrived in Kansas City at about 10 p.m. on the night of June 16th. Once they got there, they abandoned their second stolen vehicle and stole a third vehicle. And then they met up with Miller at his home. This is the epitome of what the fuck is happening. According to the FBI account, early the next morning, the three of them drove to Union Station.
1: Meanwhile, when Nash and his captors arrived at Union Station that morning, Agent Lackey went ahead to the loading platform. There he met Special Agent in Charge Reed Betterly, Agent Raymond Caffrey, and Kansas City Police Detectives W.J. Grooms and Frank Hermanson. The five men returned to the train and collected Agent Smith, Police Chief Reed, and Nash, and they made their way through the Union Station lobby.
0: So if I'm counting correctly, that's seven members of law enforcement. Four FBI agents, a police chief, and two police detectives? Yep, you counted correctly, and also one escaped fugitive. Can't forget him. Agent Lackey and Chief Reed carried shotguns and the police detectives had pistols, but the other FBI agents were unarmed. The group did pause to check their surroundings several times as they made their way through the station and out to the two cars that were waiting for them outside the station, but didn't notice anything unusual or out of the ordinary.
1: They led Nash to Agent Caffrey's Chevrolet, which was a two-door sedan, and told him to get into the front passenger seat. Why in the front? That seems backwards. Yeah, I agree. And the only explanation I found for this is that because it was a two-door sedan, the front seat needed to be pushed forward for someone to get into the back. But I still don't really understand the reasoning.
0: To be fair, there's a lot that I don't understand about this whole case just because so much of it is incomprehensible in this day and age.
1: For real. Three of the law enforcement climbed into the back seat. Chief Reed sat behind Nash, Agent Smith sat in the center, and Agent Lackey sat behind the driver's seat. Special Agent Betterly was standing with Detectives Hermanson and Grooms at the right side near the front of the car, while Agent Caffrey walked around it towards the driver's seat. Before Agent Caffrey was able to enter the car, Agent Lackey noticed two armed men run from behind a green Plymouth parked about six feet away. A third gunman was crouched to the side of the car, holding a machine gun.
0: Gunfire erupted, and the two detectives outside of the car were hit and killed instantly. Special Agent Vetterly was shot in the left arm and dropped to the ground. He moved around the side of the car to try to join Agent Caffrey and saw Caffrey collapse after being hit by gunfire. Inside the car, the barrage of bullets killed Police Chief Reed and the fugitive Frank Nash instantly. Agents Lackey and Smith fell forward in the back seat, and while Agent Lackey was struck by several bullets, neither of them died.
1: The three gunmen ran to the car and looked inside, presumably to check on Nash, but who knows for sure, and then decided to flee the scene. A Kansas City policeman had heard the commotion from inside Union Station and ran out. He fired at one of the gunmen, later identified as Floyd, who slumped as if he had been hit, but continued to run. The three got into a car, drove west out of the parking area, and disappeared.
0: The three survivors of the attack, Agents Smith and Lackey and Special Agent Vetterly, reported that the attack lasted only 30 seconds. Oh my god, that's so quick. Super quick. Based on their account, The two Kansas City detectives were killed immediately, followed seconds later by Frank Nash and Chief Reed, and finally Agent Caffrey, who was transported to a hospital but pronounced dead on arrival.
1: The FBI immediately began investigating the massacre, and ultimately the evidence pointed to Vern Miller as the leader. They were able to discover that Nash's wife had contacted him the day before. With that information, they went to Nash's home and found fingerprint impressions on beer bottles, which helped identify the others involved.
0: That actually feels like pretty damn good police work for 1933. Yeah, I totally agree. The FBI decided that their first priority was to track down Miller. In October of 1933, agents traced him to an apartment in Chicago belonging to his girlfriend, a woman named Vivian Mathias. Miller escaped before the FBI could get to him, but Mathias was captured and later pled guilty to harboring a fugitive. Was she able to provide them with information about Miller's whereabouts? No, but it didn't end up mattering, because on November 29th of that year, the FBI found Miller's mutilated body in a ditch just outside Detroit. Their investigation concluded that Miller was involved in a fight with the head of a New Jersey mob and had been killed. This whole story just gets crazier and crazier. It really does. Several authors in the years since have used Miller's death to argue that the Kansas City Massacre might have been a syndicate hit meant to silence Nash as opposed to a rescue. Do you think that's likely? I mean, I'm sure that either scenario is possible, but I don't think there's any way for us to know for sure at this point. Yeah, I agree. So what happened with the other two gunmen?
1: After the massacre, Floyd and Ricketti went to Toledo, Ohio, They met two women there, Juanita and Rose, and the four of them moved to Buffalo, New York. They took on alias names and rented an apartment. Side note, this is the type of thing that could only have happened in the 1930s, just coming up with a random name and renting an apartment. Their neighbors later reported that the two couples seldom left home and usually only left for grocery trips. On October 20th, 1934, the four left by car on a trip out west. But that same day, Floyd crashed the vehicle into a telephone pole. Police went to investigate, and a shootout ensued. Eventually, Ricketti was taken into custody, but Floyd escaped. Some of these events are so nuts that it's kind of hard to believe that this all really happened. I know, it's like a circle of what the fuck is happening. Like, if this was in a movie, you'd think it was super unrealistic. But this is all what really happened, according to the FBI files. After he was captured, Ricketti was indicted on four counts of murder. He was found guilty on June 17, 1935 exactly two years after the massacre. He appealed the conviction, but the state of Missouri Supreme Court upheld it on May 3rd, 1938, and he was executed by gas chamber on October 7th,
0: 1938. Oh, wow. That's super quick. Nowadays, if you're sentenced to death, usually it's a very long stay on death row. Yeah, a lot has changed. So what about Floyd then? What happened with him?
1: Well, a manhunt was conducted following his escape from the car crash scene, and he was located two days later, hiding out at a farm outside Clarkson, Ohio. There was a shootout, and Floyd was killed. So that was it? The three gunmen were all killed one way or another? They were, but in their investigation, the FBI discovered that four other people had aided in the conspiracy. They may not have been present at the scene, but they were discovered to have helped plan the escape. Those four individuals were Richard Galatas, Herbert Farmer, Doc Lewis Stacci, and Frank Malloy and they were indicted by a federal grand jury in Kansas City on October 24, 1934. On January 4, 1935, all four were found guilty of conspiracy to cause the escape of a federal prisoner from the custody of the United States.
0: What kind of sentence did that carry in that day and
1: age? Not a huge one. They were each sentenced to serve two years and to pay a fine of $10,000, which was the maximum penalty allowed by the law at the time.
0: And with that, the crime was solved and justice was dealt. But the Kansas City massacre had sent shockwaves through the public, and it led to a major FBI policy change. In May and June of 1934, Congress gave the FBI statutory authority to carry guns and to make arrests. Although Frank Nash and the criminals who conspired to free him were all held accountable for their actions in one way or another— it doesn't bring back the four men who were gunned down that day while trying to do their job.
1: For all details and sources regarding this case, you can check the show notes or go to our website, calendarofcrime.com. If you enjoyed this episode, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at CalendarOfCrime, and we'll be back next week with a brand new case from That Week in History.